Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход в том подъезде, как в поместье проживает Черный кот. Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит, все коты поют и плачут. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every week we pick a new book on Russia or Eurasia and talk to the author. This week we have a discussion with Thomas Duvall about his book, The Caucasus, an introduction. One word comes to mind when thinking about the South Caucasus, complex knitted together in an area roughly the size of Montana, and sandwiched between the Black and Caspian Seas, are three nations, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, three territorial disputes, Abkhazia, Nagorno-Karabakh, and South Ossetia, and numerous distinct ethnic groups, cultures, and languages. It's a lot to take into account, but one must to get a sense of the region. This is why I think Thomas Duvall's book, The Caucasus and Introduction, is so important. Duvall does a good job making the region's complexity understandable, all the while placing it into larger geopolitical contexts. So without further delay, here's my interview with Thomas. Enjoy. Hi, Thomas. Good morning. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about your book, The Caucasus and Introduction. Um, just to begin, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got interested in, in the region? Absolutely. Well, I'm a uh... A Russianist by background. Um, I have a Russian uh, literature, literature degree, um, did Russian in the 1980s and so sort of started going to um, Russia and Soviet Union properly um, just in the perestroika period. Um, then went back um, as a journalist um, in 1993 and was there for four years um, uh, as a journalist in the 90s. And I suppose um, I was always drawn southwards. Um, and some people, I guess, in, in Russia would, would be drawn to the east, to Siberia. I was always one of those people who was drawn to the south. Obviously, there was a lot of journalistic um, material there in, the, in, in terms of, of, of the conflicts of the both North and South Caucasus. Um, but I, I, I always enjoyed the complexity of the Caucasus. It was, um, the weather was always a bit better. The scenery was nicer. Um, the people a bit more um, exotic, um, and somewhere I could speak Russian. And so I, I guess from the early 90s, um, I've been um, involved in this region. Um, and really, compared to the Balkans, with which obviously there are many parallels, um, struck by how little it was covered, um, how um, its complexities were not really being written about in English. And, and so that was also um, quite exhilarating to, to, to be someone who was really um, often coming on kind of virgin territory. And, and the three books that I've, I've done have all really been a response um, to what I think was a gap in the market when I wrote the um, book on Chechnya with Carlotta Gaul in 1997. There wasn't one um, for the general reader in English uh, on that war. Um, likewise, 
there wasn't really a balanced book on the Karabakh conflict in English. Um, I, in that sense, I wrote the book that I wanted to read, um, explaining how that conflict started. And, and, and I think no one even since then has, has, has tried to write one. And, and likewise, um, talking to uh, Oxford University Press, um, we decided that there wasn't a, a short book in English, um, a kind of primer for people to, to understand the Caucasus, and, and that was why I ended up writing this latest book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's such a complicated place, as you say in, in the introduction of the book. Uh, I think a primer is necessary, very clean, to the point, um, j- aimed to a general public, so it definitely uh, uh, achieves those goals. Um, so let's talk, begin talking about the book. Um, you begin the book by mapping the geography of the Caucasus. Um, how does geography shape the various historical, ethnic, and linguistic identities in the region? Well, I think geography is, is um, incredibly important, after all. And, and we're really talking about the South uh, Caucasus. Um, um, the, the book is a slight misnomer. It should really have been called the South Caucasus, but my publisher told me it wouldn't sell as many copies if it's called it. But, um, geography is incredibly important. So this is a, a region um, defined by mountains, um, and um, by three big um, natural barriers, the, the, the Caucasus Mountains, um, the Black Sea to the west, and, and the Caspian Sea to the east. So only really the southern um, and southwestern borders are the kind of political borders of this of this region. Um, and I think because of the geography, you do have this concentration of um, small ethnic groups um, in a region, in a, in a comparatively small region surrounded by much bigger neighbours. And I think that has shaped its uh, historical destiny uh, ever since. Um, and I think the other important point to make is, um, well, I mean, just, just to continue that point, um, this makes for a region which is, is, is the kind of lands in between. Um, it's no one's backyard and everyone's backyard. So these um, small people's um, existing on the crossroads between Europe and Asia, North and South, uh, Black and Caspian Seas, um, Christianity and, and, and Islam as well, um, who use their mountain geography, um, as it were, to maintain a precarious kind of um, independence and, and actually, I would, I, I would argue in this book, manipulating the outside powers just as much as the outside powers manipulate them. That, that's the South Caucasus. And I, I, then I think another important point to make is 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 the strong difference between the South and the North Caucasus, and the South Caucasus being kind of international arena, um, in which Russia is has been a dominant player, but not the only player for the last um, two hundred years, um, and in which even in the Soviet period, Russia very much ruled by consent and co-option. This wasn't a, a full Russian colonial region. The North Caucasus, obviously, being different. Um, natural extension of, of, of Russia's geographic space, um, smaller people um, with um, much weaker institutions, um, so a very different history there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, I, should, I should clarify that we are talking about the South Caucasus, primarily Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. Um, religion, I think, is one of the interesting things, too, is because it, you know, uh, the Caucasus represents one of the few places in the world where you have a conglomeration of Christians, Jews, and Muslims, both Shia and Sunni. Uh, what role has religion played in, in the social and political contours of, of the region? Well, obviously, it, it's it's very important, and um, religion um, defines the national identity of, of, 
of the two old Christian nations, Georgians and Armenians, um, compared to the um, Muslim um, Azerbaijanis, and then and then obviously other smaller national groups, are, are either Christian or Muslim as well. Um, but I, I wouldn't say, and I think this is a very important kind of identity marker in this region, um, and 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 you know very important to it, its culture. I wouldn't however say that it's been an important driver in, in the conflicts um, or in the kind of international relations of the region um, you know look at the the two comparatively good relationship between Christian Georgia and Muslim Azerbaijan as opposed to the enmity between Christian Armenia and, and Muslim Azerbaijan that that's um, one paradox there and, and also the fact that actually Christian Armenia has a much better relationship with the Islamic Republic of Iran um, than Azerbaijan does. So I, I think that tells us that um, on an everyday level, of course, religion is important, but it's not uh, a driver in its international relations. Mm -hmm. And has it was it uh, an important driver in the past? Well, again, yes and no. I'm, um, and um, I think it, it probably was an important. Uh, it, it was important, and yet, um, um, well, the closer you look into Caucasian history, um, the more paradoxes it throws up the fact that for example uh, and, and this is kind of buried by Georgian historians Georgia spent a couple of hundred years being a um, province of the Persian Empire in which its um, monarchy and aristocracy all converted to Islam um, that's um, I think one um, one interesting historical nugget we shouldn't we shouldn't forget um, also I think the, the Sunni Shia divide um, used to be, I think, quite important, uh, more important than Turkic solidarity. We find um, Shia Azeris fighting along um, with the Russian army against Sunni Turks in the 19th century. Um, the famous Karabakh regiment of, of, of horsemen in the Russian Empire was actually Azeri Shias who actually fought, um, actually not only fought um, the Turks, but sometimes even in, in the North Caucasus as, as well. So um, um, this is a region where I think the the identities that look rather durable are actually fairly modern constructions in any way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll get to that that modern construction of nationalism um, in the region, certainly. Um, throughout much of its history, and you already kind of allude, you've alluded to this already, that that there's various relationships and, and one on the surface, one might think even contradictory relationships between peoples of the region and the great powers that surround them. Um, and throughout as much of its history, the Caucasus has been sandwiched between three great powers, Persia, Russia, and the Ottomans. Um, how did these external powers influence the shaping of the region? Well, obviously, uh, enormously. Um, uh, up until about 1800, um, Iran slash Persia and the Ottomans, Ottoman Turks being the two big colonial powers, um, a big east-west division um, in, in the Caucasus with the eastern part, Azerbaijan and, and eastern half of Georgia being, um, uh, and, and Armenia as well, being in the Persian domain, and then the Black Sea side being um, in the Ottoman domain. So that that was um, um, absolutely crucial. Um, and then, of course, the Russians um, since about 1800 being being the key um, colonial power. Um, but as I alluded to earlier, um, this um, as a region where where the local peoples have 
um, fiercely managed to maintain their autonomy. They've done it by striking alliances with great powers against um, their neighbours, um, but always have always survived. I, I think a theme of this book would be that foreign interventions in this region generally fail, or even if they look as though they succeed, they only do by by um, close cooperation um, with the locals. Um, this is not a region where people have been assimilated by by great powers, um, as as you might as you see actually over the border in Iran or in or Turkey, the way minorities have been pretty much absorbed in those two countries. The Russian Empire um, in particular didn't uh, play by those rules and, and actually kept local identities alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that this is an important thing to keep in mind because we have a, there is a tendency to think that the very the local issues and the local power structures in those regions are are can be the tools of of great power politics and you can see this in the way um, the August War two thousand eight August War was dealt with um, which of course we'll talk about too but uh, it's it's good to remind people that local. Uh, local conflicts, local identities do have a lot of say-so over the geopolitical issues, um, for sure. Uh, let's yeah. talk... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I would say that this is a, um, a very important thing, that the tail does tend to wag the dog in this region. And we'll talk, we talk about South Ossetia in 2008. I think that's a classic example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'll ask you to develop that more as we go on. Uh, let's talk about Russian domination in particular. Um, what impact did Imperial Russian rule have on uh, the region throughout the from the early 19th century until, say, 1917? Well, an, an enormous uh, impact, obviously, um, in one in which, um, you know, you see pictures of the Georgian um, monarchs in the, in the 18th century wearing Persian dress. And in the 19th century, the Georgian nobility has um, is looking to Europe via Russia is, is, is dressing in European manner, um, is learning French, um, is fighting um, with the Russian army against Napoleon. Um, so uh, particularly for the, particularly for the uh, uh, Armenians and Georgians, also to a less extent for these areas, um, the Russian Empire being a kind of um, a career uh, ladder, as it were, upwards um, towards kind of um, Europe, um, towards some kind of more enlightenment values towards modernity, obviously um, at a cost, um, a cost of, of um, as with every colonial experience of um, autonomy of, of local culture, obviously um, many examples of, of, of Russian imperial heavy-handedness. Um, but, um, but certainly um, bringing this uh, region in a, in a rather weird way to Europe um, via the Russian Empire. And uh, one way, of course, is development of, of nationalism in the, in the latter half of the 19th century. Um, and talk a little bit about the development of Georgian, Armenian, and Azeri national identity from about 1860s to 1917. Yes, obviously, um, the, the, this um, being part of an imperial structure which codifies people, which names people, which classifies people, um, solidified um, senses uh, of identity of Georgians, Armenians, uh, Azeris were, were, were called variously Tatars or, or still Turks, and their identity was more of a 20th century um, um, formation, um, early 20th century formation. Um, but but yes, clearly um, this this did 
um, as it were, solidify the national identities of these people, both um, within the empire and also in in opposition um, to the empire. Um, again, I think we uh, another classic colonial experience the British experienced in, in India and, and other places that 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 um, the people who actually educated within the colonial system become some of the some of the, the leaders in the rejection of it. And I think we saw this phenomenon um, in the Caucasus. And then obviously um, that that um, the Caucasus were the Caucasians were quite active revolutionaries also at the end of the 19th and the beginning of, of the 20th century, such that when we fast forward to 1917, um, the you know the Tsarist Empire pretty much gives up without a fight. Um, that, that there's nothing we don't have much to to hang on to um, by 1917. And how about the, the formation of national identity, uh, say, between Armenians and Azeris? I mean, the relationship between ethnic groups themselves, how did that give way to a particular type of national identity? Yes, I mean, I, I, I think um, that, that we can certainly see the roots of the conflicts, um, the protracted conflicts over Karabakh, Abkhazia, um, South Ossetia, in formation at the end of, of the 19th century with with these um, national groups, all of whom looking for different pa patrons, looking for um, you know different national ideologies, and and, there, and on a day-to-day -day level, and I think this is a constant theme of the Caucasus: people getting on on absolutely fine, even intermarriage, um, a lot of trade, um, but a sort of political identity being defined against the other, which then turns into violence when the um, upper imperial order weakens, when, when, the, when the, the policeman, the czarist or Soviet policeman goes off duty uh, and these neighbours confront one another and, and, and find that they, they don't trust each other, um, each other's policemen and, and, then, and they end up um, in, in violence. So I think that is, is, is definitely um, as you say, a phenomenon um, which begins at the end of the 19th century. Um, and and also this phenomenon, the Armenians increasingly looking to Russia as their protector um, and the Azeris um, increasingly looking to Turkey. Uh, and at the root of all of this too is, in, and this is a, a major moment in that period, um, is the Armenian genocide. Um, talk about it. its legacy. Well, talk about it the genocide itself, and then its legacy for the region uh, up to the present. Well, I mean, my, my book is is a book about the Caucasus, and I wouldn't, um, you know, many millions of words have been written on, on the Armenian genocide, and I wouldn't presume at all to be an expert. But obviously, I had to 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 write about it um, um, because it was obviously um, you know the major catastrophe um, of the wider region, shall we say, um, within the last um, century. Um, um, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, um, a huge Armenian population in eastern Anatolia, um, um, as I mentioned, Armenian revolutionaries who are um, in many cases backed by Russia or in many cases kind of self-propelling rev revolutionaries um, beginning to fight the, the Ottoman order. Um, and therefore the Armenian minority in, in, in eastern Anatolia be, be, being caught in this vice um, and um, being then subject to horrific deportation and murder 
1915, such that um, within a few years, uh, maybe there was a couple of million Armenians, and suddenly a few years um, later there were none. Um, this obviously has huge is a huge trauma for the Armenian people. Um, most of the the grandchildren of um, what is either you can either call Eastern Anatolia or Western Armenia are the uh, Armenian diaspora, including in the United States. Um, many of them going to Eastern Armenia, which had been a bit of a an outlying province, as it were, in the, in the, in the kind of great Armenian homeland, um, but then becomes under Russian protection the kind of the last locus of, 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 of concentrated uh, Armenian government and, and population. Um, so then that in turn leads to Soviet Armenia being the sort of, as it were, the, the Israel, uh, for want of a better phrase, for, for, for those Armenians. Um, and, and then obviously in 1991 becoming an independent state. Um, so um, this in turn, I think, engenders this um, extraordinary um, vigilant Armenian siege mentality, which is very much the national ideology, which obviously affects their relationship with Azerbaijanis, who, who aren't Turks in many ways, and in very different in many ways, but who Armenians actually call Turks. They don't have a separate word for Azeri. 1917, Russian Revolution, um, the Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan gain uh, independence under their own nationalist revolutions, revolutionaries, and uh, but over the next couple of years, the region is Sovietized. Um, what role does Soviet rule play in transforming uh, these these nations? Well, again, a huge transformation, um, and um, I suppose one thing I would say at the outset in answer to that question is that Soviet rule is is a many-layered and um, many-phased thing in, in the Caucasus. It's, it starts off um, with the Bolsheviks conquering the region, um, you know, in alliance with their local Bolshevik comrades, um, and promising basically to preserve the independence of, of these uh, three briefly independent countries, uh, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. Um, but then, then becomes a very different thing in the, in the 1920s with centralization, obviously hyper-centralization in the 1930s. Um, they, they largely escape the Second World War, or at least the lands do, not the people who, who fought in the army. Um, and then a very different experience um, in the post-war period. Um, so many, many um, pluses and minuses. It's almost too many number. It's very hard to, to, to characterize. Obviously, um, as we know, a very authoritarian, repressive state that killed millions of people, and yet also modernized for better or for worse, and in many ways for better, um, this region in terms of infrastructure, literacy. Um, there wasn't a single university in the Caucasus before um, the Soviet period, and, and obviously they left many behind. Um, and also um, forming in, in this extraordinary way, a, a, a national, a stronger national identity in the Soviet period because of the division into Union republics, which had their own institutions. And you could actually argue that um, Azerbaijan really is a, is a 20th century formation, um, that it was the Soviet Union that kind of um, created, institutionalized, and, and defined um, Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so the Soviet nationalities policy is, is, is this very contradictory thing, because on the one hand, they do want to, especially during the Stalin period, they want to suppress national independence. But on the other hand, they also create nations, uh, create languages, create uh, knowledge. They, they form, you know, the canon for literature uh, in this region. Um, and this leads to something quite interesting after Stalin's death in 1953. You, you point to the fact that in the post-war period, there are two things that have happened. There is, on the one hand, a national revival. And then on the other, the Caucasus represents, as you call them, little empires. Um, tell us about the relationship between these, these two. Yes, I think this is something we haven't really mentioned before. Is is is, is obviously as well as the, the three big nationalities of this region: Georgians, Armenians, and Azerbaijanis. There are obviously these smaller ethnic groups, um, and I think the way the Soviet Union worked worked very much to the benefit of these bigger nationalities: Georgians, Armenians, Azeris, many of whom rose to very senior jobs in in Moscow and senior jobs in in the Soviet elite, and 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 won many privileges for their national culture in terms of academies of sciences and um, histories being written and, and, and so on, um, privileging of, of these three nationalities. But but for, but much more tricky situation for the sub-ethnic group, for want of a better phrase, um, people like Abkhaz, Ossetians, or this rather separate case of the Karabakh Armenians who were next door to Armenia but inside Azerbaijan, um, and not to mention even smaller groups like Kurds or Lesgins or Taoists who were largely assimilated. So um, these, many of these people, um, these smaller groups were deported under Stalin. They became the punished peoples, people like Kurd, um, people like Kurds or Muscatian Turks. And um, then in the post-war period, they, they faced heavy assimilation um, um, and um, places like um, Abkhazia and, and South Ossetia um, facing a heavy kind of Georgianization um, within Soviet rule, which that which um, was was very unpopular amongst those um, local populations. So this was this national revival then amongst the Georgians and their efforts to assimilate those smaller peoples into its into its culture, and and is this where your idea of them being little empires in and of themselves in this? In well, this... yeah, the phrase actually isn't mine. The phrase is 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 Andrei Sakharov in, in in an interview right. he gave in 1989. Um, obviously, you know, the Georgians have their own perspective that they were that they they also felt um, a bit precarious in 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 relation to to the Russians. Uh, so everyone has a, has it were a big brother that they're a bit uh, nervous of, um, and I think this, this this in a sense is a, in a psychological sense is a key to understanding the conflicts of, or, or of the Caucasus. Everyone has um, someone they're afraid of, um, and it's is it it's a whole sort of a combination of different mutual insecurities between um, ethnic groups of different sizes. Let's move on to those conflicts. Um, if there is one ideology, and and, and we think of post-Soviet, uh, the post-Soviet space, we think of a, a kind of loss of ideology. But if there is one ideology that unites, or or at least post-Soviet Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia share, it's nationalism. I mean, in a way, the nationalism of the past has has come really to fruition in, in the post-Soviet period. Um, how has the post-Soviet nationalism been a source for uh, driving these frozen conflicts 
and, and what is the relationship between nationalism and Armenia and Azerbaijan's conflict over uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and Georgia's with, with Abkhazia and South Ossetia? Well, certainly there, there is a sort of, um, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, as whatever was left of socialist ideology collapses, um, nationalism definitely filled the vacuum um, a rather sort of um, a nationalism born out of, in many ways, out of the rather um, the worst aspects of the Soviet educational system and and those kind of national formations in in, in of the Soviet period, um, a sort of um, regard certainly um, Georgians talking about Ossetians and Abkhaz as guests quote unquote on 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 their territory, um, very much um, a this very intolerant attitude we also saw in, in the former Yugoslavia of, you know, why, why should I be a minority on your territory when you can be a minority on mine? Um, um, and, and not, no democratic culture of negotiation or compromise on, on these issues. Um, and, you know, obviously this was a phenomenon across the former Soviet space, but, but, um, when it turned to conflict, um, the conflict, as it were, sort of, um, uh, I don't know how to say this, the, the conflict kind of solidified the nationalism so that other people went through that phase in the 1990s, but, but the Caucasus is still stuck with it in the sense that it's become um, it's become a, a part of the national identity in terms of part of the national ideology, in terms of the conflict we fought with the other, the people we lost, the land we lost or the land we won. Um, and so 20 years on, um, these um, regions are still still stuck um, with that mobilizing national ideology as, as a powerful force. Um, it's an instrument used by elites um, to legitimize themselves, but it's an instrument which also is a kind of trap for them in the sense that um, they uh, have used that, that, um, used that instrument uh, against the other, but they 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 can't move forward in the peace processes because um, they'll be accused of, of betrayal, and so even though people um, surely are a bit more tired and cynical about these national ideas than they were 20 years ago, um, we're still stuck with them, and we're still stuck with this kind of idea that um, our territory is a sacred thing which we which which can't be compromised um with the other mm -hmm. so on the one hand we have these very you know passionate and, and and emotional local conflicts but on the other hand the caucasus has been uh historically has been a great geopolitical concern because of oil um how has the geopolitics of oil uh impact impacted the region particularly in in the post-soviet period well um i'm I'm a little bit skeptical about the role of oil um, when it comes to conflict. Certainly, obviously, oil and gas latterly has, has again put the Caucasus on the map, and obviously Azerbaijan on the map. Um, Baku was, in fact, the world's first oil city um, back in the 1880s, um, and then slowly declined um, in the 20th century, um, and has picked up um, at more modest levels, but, but has made Azerbaijan an energy power again um, in the 1990s and, and the 2000s. Um, and then we've had the, the building of, of two pipelines, the Baku-Jehan oil pipeline and the South Caucasus gas pipeline from Baku 
through Georgia to Turkey, which which has definitely put the South Caucasus back um, on the map um, in, in in terms of energy. Um, and obviously, this has cemented a relationship between Azerbaijan and Georgia. It's it's meant that Azerbaijan has been able to kind of create itself um, as a petro state. Um, although I would, but I would argue that it's had surprisingly little influence um, on on the conflicts. On the one hand, if you look at Azerbaijan, it means that Azerbaijan is more powerful and spends a lot more on its military. However, Azerbaijan has made no progress in recovering. Um, the land it lost in the 1990s to the Armenians in the Karabakh war. Um, and also the presence of pipelines means that Azerbaijan has to be more um, worried about any new conflict because obviously those pipelines would be vulnerable if, if fighting broke out. Mm -hmm. And what about in terms of, say, other powers and their interest in the region, say Russia and the United States or Europe? How how has these uh, these local powers become kind of a proxy war for for larger issues, uh, geopolitical issues? Well, um, certainly the, the pipeline politics has contributed to run rather unhealthy polarization in the region um, between Azerbaijan, um, Georgia, Turkey on the one hand, um, as it were, looking to the United States in particular um, as a patron. Um, and Armenia looking to Russia, Armenia also looking a bit to I Iran. So there's, there has been that polarization, which um, now that I live in Washington, I see some rather unhealthy sim symptoms of that in Washington, that there are some people in in Washington who, for whom the Caucasus is basically all about oil and Azerbaijan, and the Armenians are an irritant um, to, to, to the development of the, of the great relationship between Azerbaijan and the United States. Um, so yes, and, and Russia obviously drawn in because um, Russia was suspicious of non-Russia pipeline routes, although I think Russia is now reconciled to that. Um, I, th I think that was very much, however, the game of the 1990s. I think um, we, we have, we've seen some of the negative consequences of that, um, and, and hopefully people are trying to move a bit beyond that. And obviously, when we look at Armenia, and Azerbaijan, each of them also have um, tried to balance their foreign policies. The Ar Armenia has, as it were, twin patrons in both in Moscow and in California. Uh, and Azerbaijan um, also tries to balance its foreign policy, and, and the Azeri elite is actually quite close to the, to the Russian elite as well. It's, it's Georgia which has, has made its kind of major ideological choice uh, westwards, uh, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. um, 2003, uh, Georgia is the site of the first colored, so-called colored revolution. Um, how has the Rose Revolution reshaped Georgian society and politics? Well, it's obviously, um, it was obviously a hugely important and radical event at the time. Um, and it's still, in a sense, funnily enough, even eight years on, a bit of a work in progress. We don't know how that story ends. Um, it starts with this great peaceful uprising um, um, in against the because of the forged um, parliamentary elections in, in Georgia in 2003 ends up with Edward Shevardnadze resigning as president and this very young um, team coming to power headed by Mikhail Saakashvili the youngest head of state in Europe at the time um, a series of quite radical reforms particularly against corruption um, in the first year which you know really um, modernize 
um, a, a very weak state, um, quite with su surprising speed, although in, in a kind of also in a way that's not really fully democratic. Um, so um, it's 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 an interesting and and lively experiment, um, which uh, we're now heading towards 2013, where 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 Sakish really has to step down, um, and I think um, we can only really judge this experiment by the way it ends and certainly there have been many positive things about it um, but um, um, the the cost I suppose has, has been uh, George's old pluralistic culture which has been as it were taken over by this one very dynamic young um, pro-American modernizing but rather intolerant group which is currently running Georgia. Will Saakashvili leave office in 2013 or is he making uh, steps to kind of secure his his place well this is the great unknown that he's that the constitution has been changed with, in a way to strengthen the powers of the prime minister so he could in a constitutional fashion do a putin mm -hmm. and become prime minister however um he knows there would be a cost rep, big reputational cost uh if he did that so so um i think he's still weighing up um, his options. We don't really know the answer to that yet. Um, Georgia once again became international use, news when a uh, war broke out in August 2008 between it, Russia, over South Ossetia. A lot has been in the, in the press, especially about questioning who started the war. Was it Georgia? Was it Russia? Et cetera, et cetera. But uh, why did the war start? Not not who caused it, but why did con why right. did it go hot? Well, I I. I... One of my aims in writing this book was to was to give as balanced and nuanced picture as I could of of, of how that war happened, um, and clearly it had um, local factors, and it was also driven in a sense by this very unhealthy kind of geopolitical rivalry between uh, Russia and the United States um, in Georgia over Georgia. Um, so I I, I think um, certainly the Russians were the ones who played their hands most cleverly. They, 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 um, the Georgia had lost Abkhazia and South Ossetia um, as de facto territories under its control in the 1990s. Um, they were living in the kind of twilight zone. Uh, they looked to the Russians, but the, but the Russia um, at that point um, didn't recognize them, but, but was slowly exerting its influence because, because the Georgians refused uh, to deal with these territories. Um, and Saakashvili's biggest um, and, and gravest mistake was, 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 rather than concentrating on domestic reforms, was to proclaim that he wanted to reintegrate Abkhazia and South Ossetia into Georgia by the end of his first term. Um, these were long-term protracted conflicts, and, and that was obviously alarming um, to the breakaway territories who, who saw this um, basically as a kind of bid for reconquest. Um, and then, basically, from from in the summer of two thousand and four, he had an aborted military campaign in in South Ossetia. Two thousand and six, he took over um, a small mountain spread of Abkhazia, which was under no one's control. Um, and um, we then really had an unhealthy dynamic um, coming after that time, with with the, with um, Georgians pushing. Harder, the, the Abkhaz and the Ossetians looking more and more to Russia, the Russians being happy to manipulate that situation. 
um, then the overlaid with with, with um, geopolitical issues such as um, the in my mind my mind very unwise uh, Washington initiative to try and get Georgia into NATO which only um, uh, antagonized the Russians the issue about the recognition of, of Kosovo in, in, in February 2008 by the West which the Russians saw as double standards so um, Russia and, and, and Washington also beginning to kind of fight their disputes over Georgia um, and Saakashvili being not a cautious character but a gambler rather than trying to um, see this as a problem raising the stakes all the time and, and, and eventually to my mind going one step too far and, and, and another um, under, under extreme pressure of course um, but and, uh, under extreme provocation and another bid in on 7th of August 2008 to, to retake South Ossetia and, and, and to get one over the Russians as it were uh, which ends um, in absolute catastrophe when immediately the Russians who'd been waiting for something like this respond with, with, with huge force. Um, that in a, in a rather <laughs> much too abbreviated nutshell is, is, is my version of what happened mm -hmm. in 2008. And, and what's the status of, of South Ossetia and Abkhazia now? Is there a real push for some kind of independent state or will they be absorbed into Russia or they, they they are they are proclaimed as independent states, although Abkhazia has a has a tiny population remaining of only about thirty thousand people. Um, so it's a tiny agricultural territory um, which is not at all viable as an independent state. But but um, Abkhazia more so with about two hundred thousand people. But most importantly, after the war, end of August two thousand eight, Russia recognizing both as independent states, so, so no longer recognizing them as part of Georgia. Um, um, no other international um, power um, following up on that, so we have a kind of um, permanent truncation um, of the Caucasus with, with these would-be independent states on the one hand supported by Russia, um, on the other hand Georgia fiercely resisting that. Um, I, I, I believe that some kind of deal is possible over Abkhaz, over excuse me over South Ossetia in, in in the future, which really has no strategic interest to Russia. Um, but even that will take quite a long time. Ab Abkhazia, I think, it, it is a much much more difficult um, a nut to crack. We're, we're we're looking at a kind of Cyprus analogy of I think many many years before there will be any compromise over Abkhazia. Mm -hmm. um, in your conclusion, you, you make a very interesting point. Uh, you say that, quote, more division and conflict can be avoided in the region if different parts of the South Caucasus start to think less like individual actors and more like members of a region. Um, why do you think that this would alleviate uh, future divisions or more division and more conflict? And, and what's the pers what's the, what are the prospectus of, of this actually happening? Well, to start with the perspective. So they're pretty bleak. Um, but I, I, I think having worked on this book, um, um, it's clear to me that, that the South Caucasus does make sense as a geographic and economic region, and in many ways a cultural region, um, and that um, it, it worked quite well as a region when there was an imperial master. Obviously, we don't want a new imperial master. Um, we want any kind of integration to be voluntary. Um, but it seems to me that um, any prospect it has 
uh, in the future are, are uh, as a communications hub um, between um, you know Europe and Asia, the North and South, East and West, um, and that th these three countries um, are very small and they, they 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 need each other, and that also the kind of minority majority conflicts um, will also be mitigated um, if if there's some kind of super regional um, aspect um, um, to the way people um, manage their affairs in, in this region. Um, this is obviously um, a very long-term perspective. Um, local politicians really aren't interested in it. But I think it's helpful for, for outsiders to, 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 to try and think in these broader regional terms, particularly when they're planning kind of big trade and regional infrastructure projects. Well, your book has certainly provided a good primer on on the region. It, it helps it certainly helps someone like me, who of course knows a bit about the, the Caucasus, but n not too much. It's given me enough information to at least go on to future reading. Um, so, now that you're done with this book, what are you working on now? What's what's in store for you in the future? Well, I'm 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 currently with the Carnegie Endowment in Washington, which is a is a great opportunity just to to pursue um, more Caucasus. Projects. I'm currently working on a project on on Georgia, tackling that question that I raised earlier. Whether Georgia, um, how is the how is the Saakashvili administration going to handle the next couple of years? Um, is it going to institutionalise the reforms it made, or is it going to become just carry on being um, some kind of revolutionary cabal, which 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 doesn't put down deep roots? How serious are they about Europe? They've got a, a kind of strong. Um, Cato Institute liber libertarian wing, which which is very skeptical of Europe, um, although in many ways Europe and the EU offers their them an anchor, and particularly a kind of um, economic market that they shouldn't ignore. So so looking at, uh, at those kind of issues. Well, thanks a lot for talking to us. I really appreciate it, um, and I look forward to hearing more f more from you. Okay, very good to talk to you too. We've been speaking with Thomas Duvall about his book, The Caucasus, an introduction. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next week when New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies talks to Christopher Ward about his book, Brezhnev's Folly, The Building of BAM and Late Soviet Socialism. Until then, goodbye. Того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живем, Надо бы лампочку повесить, денег все не соберем.